Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Christina Marie Darling is the author of 36 books. Her work has been recognized with multiple residencies, fellowships, and grants, including an artist-in-residence position at Cité Internationale des Arts in Paris, six residencies at the American Academy in Rome, and an artist-in-residence position with the Andorran Ministry of Culture. She was recognized with the Dan Liebertson Prize from the Academy of American Poets, which she received on three separate occasions, among many other awards and honors. Christina serves as editor-in-chief of Tupelo Press and Tupelo Quarterly. Christina's latest book, Look to Your Left, A Feminist Poetics of Spectacle, was recently published by the University of Akron Press and is going to be the core of our discussion today. Christina, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the series and really look forward to our discussion. Yes, I really look forward to discussing your book, which I think will be incorporated into many classrooms. So before diving into that book, why do you love poetry? The most basic of questions. That's such an interesting question. Um, So basically my background is as a scholar and a philosopher. Um, Before starting my poetry studies, I actually did a master's in continental philosophy at the University of Missouri. And what was so disconcerting to me about scholarly writing was that the ideas were so provocative and so interesting but the writing style was just stifling. And I came over to poetry um, after being admitted to SUNY Buffalo for literary theory and psychoanalysis. Um, I came over to the poetry side of their program because I was just so intrigued by the unique possibilities of performative language for making theoretical claims Mm -hmm. and for constructing scholarly arguments. I am so excited by just the possibilities of performative language and experimental forms as a way of intervening into existing scholarly conversations. I think that it's so much more powerful, right, if the reader can viscerally experience and, you know, watch ideas unfold before them on the page rather than just being confined by these scholarly forms. So I think that most of my poetry has some element of, you know, literary criticism in it. But I think that, you know, the possibilities of poetry for conveying critical and theoretical claims are just so incredible. Yeah, and I think that the way you convey an idea can undermine or amplify the idea. And if the way it's conveyed is so dry and staid and either boring or or unapproachable by the by most people then it limits the the range and of that idea being heard so i love that that connection that you made there so in your essay on victoria chang you include a quote about poetry being marginalized in our culture perhaps that is true and in most bookstores poetry books are overwhelmed by other genres but i found at the open mics i hold monthly 
uh, as a as my role as poet laureate for Dublin, California, that a majority of poets at the mic are reciting publicly for the very first time and come from all backgrounds and ages, is part of the perception of poetry and poets being marginalized a side effect of the sharing of poetry being such a vulnerable act that limits the number of poets that act that you are actually in the community that there are many of them but so many of them um, really are hiding that part of them. Wow, that's so interesting. I think that the vulnerability of poetry is certainly one part of it, but I'm actually a former labor rights um, journalist. And so I would say that the way that we think about and value labor Mm. really contributes to the perception of poetry being this marginalized art. Um, Like even when we think about language, there are certain types of language that we tend to value and grant authority to over other types of language, like scientific language would be at the very top of the list. Um, You know, coding, computer science, also at the top of the list. Uh, But the more subjective types of language, poetry, autobiography, right? We tend to grant those less legitimacy. And I think that that really plays into how writers are compensated for their work. you know, because writers of poetry and autobiography rarely see advances, whereas, you know, with other forms of writing, it's it's much different. So I would I would go so far as to say a broken system with respect to labor and valuation really fuels what is a misconception about poetry. You know, I I really relate to that because as a my day job in tech. I was for many, many years, decades, I was writing poetry and loved it, but kind of kept it to friends and family. And I was self-conscious about even saying I was a poet. And it was only in the last couple of years when I finally pulled together a collection and published it and and then was given the opportunity to be Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, which is inherently public and you can't avoid it, that I leaned into it. And now I have on an equal stature. Yes, I'm a product manager in my day job in tech, and I am a poet, and that they are on equal footing. And that was a, a pretty significant mental shift that I had to make. And I think your observation is precisely why that's the case. Yeah. Uh, so the critical importance of language, of grammar, and societal power structures is woven into multiple essays. In the literary text as performance and spectacle, you quote Julia Kristeva, a revolution in the social order begins in poetic language. Is this opportunity for revolution in part because poets have so much power over words, grammar, and forming, and, and the form of expressing ideas? And why do you believe poetry has such power to shape civilization versus other forms of writing? That's a great question. And I would go so far as to say that you know, the French feminist theorists of like the 1960s, I think that they were so interesting in how they deployed, you know, the conventional received academic forms of writing as a form of power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see someone like Julia Kristeva with a revolution in poetic language, um, taking all of the kind of received scholarly forms um, and using them to prevent to present something totally unconventional and totally unanticipated, uh, but at the same time lending legitimacy to those ideas. Or we see someone like Lusa Rigore, who's 
appropriating for male critics to lend legitimacy to her point of view. Um, I think that there's something really powerful about, you know, learning the forms of discourse only to deploy them to expand what is possible within that discourse. Mm -hmm. And poetry is where that really happens, much more so than critical theory, even though we have these great, you know, experimental feminist theorists to look back on. I think that with poetry, you know, it's like Myungmi Kim always said that, you know, we can expand what is possible within the existing power structures through our use of language and through how we inhabit language. And so much of that comes through experimental, innovative, or postmodern, postconceptual forms of writing. Um, so for me, that's that's the excitement. Yeah, and I think you're, that's an interesting observation about use these conventional vehicles that have inherent authority, but then you imbue them with uh, something revolutionary or maybe tweak them Absolutely. a little bit you know you tweak them a little bit where they have this the superficially they're this yeah i loved uh, I, I thought that was a fascinating essay and by the way i'll say in general this what makes this book really interesting to read is that each of the essays is pretty digestible in in size and in length and it was that i was that an intentional choice um to make or, or was that the result of getting them placed in other places, they needed to be constrained to be pretty compact. I'm so glad you asked about that. So I actually wrote the entire book in magazine assignments because I had this huge book deadline and I wanted mini deadlines to kind of keep mm. myself accountable throughout the year. Uh, but at the same time, I think that it was important for all of the essays to be kind of bite-sized and approachable. Yeah. Because part of my goal in writing the book was, you know, there's so many fascinating experimental texts. Like, I mean, a huge renaissance of experimental writing is, is happening right now. But so many educators don't necessarily have the tools to get those, those books into the classroom. And that, for me, is such a, you know, it's, it's such a tragedy. So, you know, part of my goal in writing Look to Your Left was to, you know, equip educators with the tools to make their curriculum more representative and more inclusive and also more innovative because so many of the texts that get taught in classrooms are like, you know, very narrative, very straightforward poetry. And, you know, educators sometimes don't know what to do or mm -hmm. what to pair with the more experimental or postmodern or post-conceptual forms. Well, I think that was very effective. And it reminds me of uh, books I've read in a business context where they have 100 pages of content and they cram it into 500 pages. And that's really frustrating. So you did completely the opposite. There's a density um, in still digestible, but each essay is dense. It's very effective. Uh, so in the aesthetics of silence and other essays, you examine one of the key elements of poetry, the ability to employ empty space, silence, uh, as a device. It's a tool prose doesn't really employ, although one exception in the other direction would be Blindness, uh, which was a book that employed almost no paragraph formatting or, or um, punctuation of any kind, and it was intentionally filled the entire page. Um, but for the most part, prose doesn't really think about that. So what advice do you have for writers of prose who are interested in writing poetry and specifically uh, with the use of silence. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to think about. And I will begin by saying that silence can take many forms and do many different types of work. 
within a literary text. So of course, there's like the white space that we see on the page, right? The gaps, the ruptures, the elisions. But at the same time, there's also elided narrative context or, you know, something that's just left out or left unsaid within a story. Mm -hmm. Um, There can be, you know, missing characters or missing objects in a story. So I think that there's, you know, a lot of different types of work that silence can do in a text. But for me, what it all comes down to is thinking about that silence or what's left out or elided in a text um, as a form of power. Because as the writer, if you're withholding that information, right, it's a kind of agency that you have that you can use to, you know, give the reader something they don't expect, to make them think, to really make them reflect. And I think it's so interesting, too, how we as a larger culture think about silence. We tend to think of it as a kind of disempowerment or a symptom of disempowerment, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we're not speaking because we're not allowed to speak or because we feel that we can't speak. But really, when a writer is deploying silence in an effective way in a literary text, often it's a form of agency for that writer and also a show of resistance for that writer, right? Like, I think that so many you know, readers and literary critics expect women writers, expect non-binary writers, expect writers of color to give a certain kind of narrative. Um, But by refusing to kind of give into those expectations, right, through that purposeful withholding, it becomes a powerful form of resistance as well. Love it. Yeah. Uh, So poetry, like other art forms, isn't static. It evolves with changing tastes, the desire to experiment. Uh, It's a reflection of our culture at a point of time. Where do you see contemporary poets pushing poetry into new directions that has you most excited? Oh, I love that question. So I will say that there is, you know, just as a reader and as an editor, I see a lot of, you know, really straightforward narrative poetry And, you know, what's interesting about that is the ideas that are being dealt with and deployed are so interesting, but I want the language to be just as interesting as those ideas. Mm -hmm. So going forward, just, you know, seeing poetry evolve and grow, I'm really excited for poetry that uses language and diction and description in ways that are just as provocative as the ideas and the stories that are being conveyed. And I think that with like the poetry of social justice, there is so much potential there, Um, you know, for poetry to be politically charged on the level of content, but also for poetry to offer a powerful intervention into the kind of hierarchies and the causal chains that are implied by grammar, right? Because you know, grammar, as we see it in poetry, it's it's a very Western, very male, very, mm-hmm. um, you know, conventional way of thinking about storytelling and reason and what makes sense and what the reader is going to accept. Um, so I'm really excited to see poetry um, that questions, you know, what, you know, our ideas about reason, our ideas about logic, storytelling, and takes risk, not only on the level of ideas and ideology, but also on the level of, you know, the syntax, the diction, the language itself on its, you know, smallest, most micro level. Cool. Um, and I, I think that the building on what you, you said there, uh, 
I hope that students get introduced to more of these contemporary voices so that their framing of poetry isn't based on the classics and poetry that doesn't have the voice that resonates with people that are young. And that's when I was back in the 10th grade, it was the my poetry teacher introduced us to contemporary poets and it just opened my mind and made me think about poetry in a totally different way than if I had than if he had stuck to the safe classics from a hundred years before that are still wonderful poets, but they don't resonate in the same way. Oh, absolutely. I was teaching at Wichita State and I did a unit on small press publishing in an undergraduate course. There were students that didn't know there were living poets writing today, and it was their first exposure to living poets. And, oh, my God, they were so excited to see themselves as like a part of a community of working writers. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean there's not value in exploring poetry that was written a long time ago and you learn from it, but that can't be the sole foundation. Otherwise, you just it just it, it pushes people away. Yeah. So several of the essays discuss the role of poetry in protest and social change. You've commented on this uh, already. What advice do you have for poets seeking to advance a social issue without losing the poetry along the way? And I ask this in terms of open mics I've been to where there will be inevitably be someone who is using the forum to really um, unleash demons that they have. And it's probably very helpful for them. I sit back as a listener and going, I'm not quite sure it's compelling as poetry yet. It's, it's a necessary personal step, but it isn't quite yet poetry. How do you balance the, uh, the two without losing the voice of that person with a very strong point of view, but, but, but finding the craft of poetry along the way, which is a tricky balance. Yeah, that is such a difficult balance to strike. And I don't know, I would just think about, you know, creating tension, whether it's tension on the level of narrative or on the level of the types of language the poet is using or a kind of tension between form and content, right? Where the um, form that the, the poem is taking strikes sparks against the message that the poet is, mm-hmm. is conveying. Um, you know, thinking in particular of one of my favorite literary texts, which is Kim Gecklin Short, um, her, her poetry collection, The Bugging Watch and other exhibits, where she's kind of commenting on the exclusionary and elitist nature of academic forms of writing. And um, she does this by presenting prose poems and footnotes um, that she writes. Uh, but the the prose poems and footnotes are all about bugs. Um, they're like all of these little stories about about insects and that whimsy in that um, that kind of you know carefree narrative. It, it really creates a provocative tension with the scholarly you know very serious form that the poems are right. presented in. Um, so I would just, you know, for any writer that's, you know, trying to, you know, convey a strong message, but is also, you know, trying to, you know, hone in their craft, I would encourage them to think about the kind of tension that drives the poem forward. And I think that, you know, narrative tension is only one way. Um, it tends to be the way that's emphasized most in writing classes. You know, you know what it, what are the characters grappling with, or what is the speaker grappling with? But there's also so much work that can be done, and so much potential with respect to you know using 
different types of language, like the language of pop culture paired with the language of academia, mm-hmm. or um, you know, putting some some interesting message in a form that we wouldn't expect. Um, like the poet Christy Bowen has a piece called Algorithms, and it's a, it's it's a very crazy, wild dream narrative, but she presents it in the form of a mathematical equation. Um, so there's this really interesting, you know, tension between form and content that really drives the poem forward in a powerful way. So in the generative violence of the experiment, you reference the inherent violence and destruction in artistic experiment, that destruction is a key element to creating something new. Talk more about how modern poets should think about dismantling convention and perhaps what they've been taught about technique and form and finding their poetic voice. But put in another way, is it possible to veer so far from convention that the art remains accessible solely to the artist? And what's the balance there? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm so intrigued by this question. And I think that it is, you know, really correct to say that you know, it's shared forms of discourse and shared um, conventions that enable us to participate in literature as a community. Um, But at the same time, I think that there is a way to work within the confines of received forms to expand what is possible within them. And this is also something that Myung-Mi Kim, she was one of my mentors, she talks a lot about, and it's something that poets like Cecilia Vicuña and you know Jenny Bully really excel at. Um, but I would say the balance would be um, not to necessarily you know, set out to dismantle tradition, um, which is the impulse of so many young poets and so many emerging writers who are just beginning in their craft. Um, But I think that what's more powerful than just a simple dismantling is a kind of critique Mm -hmm. or an argument about that tradition, right? Like what is unacceptable about it? Um, What about it needs to change? What can be preserved or refined going forward? And this is something that comes up a lot in aesthetics and the philosophy of art. Um, There's something that I love in in aesthetics, which is called the conversation theory of art. It's the belief that all of art, all of poetry, all of painting is a conversation where the poet or the novelist or the painter decides what elements of the conversation they want to preserve and what elements they want to revise or change going forward. Um, And I think there's something powerful about that to kind of acknowledge what has come before, but at the same time to kind of make it your own. And this is something that you see with poets working in form too, right? Um, that the form becomes the primary thing and they don't think about how to make the sonnet or couplets or tercets or the the villanelle their own, right? They don't think about how to put their own stamp on it. But I think it's so much more interesting um, when we're using form or using tradition, but at the same time commenting on it, um, you know, through our own revision of that, that form and through our own kind of aesthetic as poets. So people across the gender spectrum have more voice in poetry today. Uh, at least I, I, I'm. Uh, this is me coming from a completely cis, white, straight male. Everything you know, I, I check every box of being um, in the majority. 
Um, but at least my perception is that there is are, are more voice in poetry today. Is there an argument to be made that our education system should limit pre-20th century poets in curriculum, not only because the poetry is less current and accessible to students, but also because published poetry was so dominated by men and diverse voices excluded or discouraged, silenced or restricted, or having to hide uh, behind pseudonyms um, until relatively recently. Should, is the education system need to change to um, make it more welcoming? That is such a good question. And I would say the answer is not necessarily limiting historical poetry, because there is something really important about having, you know, that background and that knowledge going forward. But I say raid the archives. Like there is so much thought provoking, innovative, challenging poetry by women, non-binary poets, gender non-conforming poets, poets of color that, you know, is just locked in an archive and hasn't seen the light of day. So I I think there is so much to be said for making archives and making those, Mm. you know, interesting and, you know, very well-guarded collections accessible to students. You know, whether it's through expanding scholarly publishing, creating editions or edited collections of these works. Uh, But I think that you know, the voices that we've seen in terms of historical poetry are so few and, you know, there's so many more voices to be heard. So, yeah, I say raid the archives and, you know, jostle all of the hierarchies of the archives and just get students excited um, about historical poetry that way. I think raid the archives and build new archives, accessible archives that uh, that really help people find those voices that are otherwise hard to find. I love that idea. Uh, so just a couple more questions before I hand the mic over to you. So you write that <clears throat> textual difficulty can be a feminist gesture, that striving for universal understanding of text is not necessarily the goal, that the rules of conformity are a form of privilege, and that off, uh, that othering can be applied to those refusing to follow conventioning. I found these essays particularly compelling, poets and challenging the forms of poetry being acts of rebellion. How did crafting this book of rich and challenging essays impact your understanding of feminism? So, yeah, that's so interesting to think about. And I will say that you know, when I first set out, you know, when I was in my PhD wanting to publish feminist texts by other writers, I thought that, you know, feminism on the page and, you know, hybrid or cross-genre writing on the page was one specific thing. Uh, But as I worked more as a scholar and as a publisher, I was so impressed just by the the sheer variety of feminist writing and the sheer variety of experimental forms. And it really showed me that you can have like a single idea, right? Um, That, you know, writers are working towards social justice through performative language, but that same idea can be portrayed from a scholarly standpoint in infinite ways. And that was one of the great joys of writing this book was, you know, I kind of struck out with this idea of, you know, feminist poetics of spectacle, but just seeing the sheer variety of stylistic approaches to what was essentially the same um, literary or philosophical question was was really incredible and just inspiring to me as a writer. Cool. Well, the essays in the afterword are personal, 
disturbing, unsettling to read, while, alas, not particularly surprising, and offer an intimate look at how sexual violence can even be found in literary criticism. As a cis white male with privilege, as I mentioned before, on multiple dimensions, I have never experienced directly the attacks you describe so effectively. What are the systemic structures at play in the literary world that need to be torn down and rebuilt to significantly reduce the sexual violence you described? Yeah, that's that's such a compelling question. And I will say that so much of the time, power dynamics begin in language and how we deal with language. So in her essay collection, The End of the Sentimental Journey, Sarah Vaff writes that the way that we you know, discuss experimental writing by women and the way that we discuss women's bodies is just strikingly similar, right? There's this assumption that people are kind of owed access to experimental texts without necessarily doing the work um, of, of, you know, getting background and, you know, inter interacting with the text and thinking about it, doing that imaginative work on their own. Uh, but there's also a kind of sense of entitlement towards women's bodies. And I was really just you know, intrigued by this idea of readerly entitlement. Like, what does that say about us as readers of poetry that so many readers feel like, you know, every text is for them? Um, but I think that it is really symptomatic, right? Um, if readers think every text is for them, um, you know, it, it definitely, you know, if we're thinking about academia and writing workshops and, these kinds of artistic communities that we inhabit, I think that that belief that, you know, every writer um, should be able to kind of have this mastery over every literary text, it's very symptomatic of those communities. And so for me, change begins with how we inhabit language and how we interact with and treat language. And, you know, just giving, you know, that respect to writing that may be different from your own or maybe stylistically, aesthetically, not what you would write yourself. Um, I think that just giving it that respect is, is maybe a first step forward. Right. Well, now I'd like to pass the mic over to you for you to share some of your poetry. Well, thank you so much for creating this space for me to share some of my poetry. I know this was, you know, a discussion of a scholarly work highlighting books by other poets. So I'm really excited to also share some poems with you. These are from a new and selected um, poems that just came up from Black Lawrence Press called Daylight Has Already Come. And I've chosen these particular pieces because they kind of engage with the same questions of spectacle and performative language that we talked about in this podcast. So the first piece I'm going to read is called Sad Film with Subtitles. The first scene was nearly untranslatable. Velocity and the little ache at the very back of the throat. Were we seeing a design in the narrative when all that was really there was the hand on the waist, the movement of a white dress in the middle distance? And for once they traveled to a country that spoke another language entirely, without so much as a miniature dictionary to lessen the shock, to lose that thread the moment the wind picks up, 
to no longer be able to trace the progress of an idea or the line that reason makes in the hot white sand was to somehow always be on holiday. Still, they both had to wonder what the gatekeeper thought of them, their mouths that empty, not even a cough to break the silence. So the next poem I'm going to read is called Sad Film with Empty Theater. It was as if you yourself had sent me out on that ship, only to traverse a lake that had been iced over by our own tears. According to the others, I didn't make a sound when I was born. I just stared at the snow. Even now, you can only give me gesture after worthless gesture, which means we have no money, no car, and nothing but time. After a few days, the frozen birds start to seem like miracles. Their blind faith in the weather, those little knots in the branches of the trees, narrative and its faulty architecture, all I ever wanted was one carefully wrapped box for myself. It doesn't matter what's waiting inside. And I'll just read one more. Um, this is called Sad Film with Emergency Exit. The blue room is always dark, no matter who comes walking through the double doors. Which is to say, he couldn't even speak about their last meeting in French, let alone pronounce her name properly. That night, nearly everything was keeping track of time. The bouquet on the table, the field just beyond the window, and of course, the snow. If only the, if only, According to the waitress, it was a teenaged violinist from Neuer's who brought the coast an even costlier war, gold buttons sewn one by one at the very back of her neck. Little Mary of the Cross, we know he really loved that girl. The cough and stutter. It is difficult to take either of them seriously when all the other houses in the city are burning too. Thank you. Oh, it's so lovely to hear. Uh, this is one of the, my favorite parts of every episode where I get to hear the poems read in the poet's voice, which always introduces such a wonderful uh, dimension. Uh, so I love how you've incorporated prose poetry into these selections. In my most recent book, I used prose poetry for the first time really to solve several poetry riddles that couldn't be solved with other forms of poetry. How do you approach writing prose poetry? And for those new to poetry, what are some of the key differences between prose and prose poetry? Oh, that's such a good question. So in general, I really love prose poetry because the reader comes to prose with all of these preconceived ideas and expectations of how the story is going to unfold. Um, so generally when people see prose on a page, they tend to expect a linear narrative, um, you know, a consistent kind of texture of language. 
um, but also, you know, very clear, transparent meaning. And so I tend to think of those readerly expectations as material that I can use to give the reader something they don't expect. And in fact, the exact opposite of what they, they would expect. Um, so I love, you know, kind of capitalizing on all of the preconceived notions and expectations that readers bring to prose. And, um, you know, with, with respect to the difference between prose and prose poetry, I would say prose poetry is a little bit more self-conscious, that there is a kind of awareness of those expectations and a willingness to deploy those expectations for artistic purposes. Wonderful. Well, finally, you've got an incredible catalog of books that you've written in essays. Well, what are you working on now? Because I suspect you are always have a, have a large backlog of things you're working on or wish you could be working on. Well, thank you for asking about current projects. I'm actually working on a collection of essays for Clemson University Press that's under contract. Uh, about silence and social justice in contemporary poetry. So stay tuned. Um, hopefully many of those essays will be appearing in magazines as, as articles or review essays. And the collection will be published later this year by Clemson University Press. And I'm really excited to be working with them. They have such a a high standard of scholarly writing. They, they're going to whip me into shape and I, I'm looking forward to becoming um, a better scholar and writer with their guidance. Well, I'm looking forward to that too when it when it becomes available. So please let us know and come visit us again when uh, when the time comes. Well, Christina, it's been a privilege speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing your work with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for your insightful interview questions. This was an absolute delight. Wonderful. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.